0: wild world
1: presented by
0: do you know raisin the natural wine app it's a guide to natural wine makers, bars restaurants and wine shops all around the world guaranteed 30 percent natural wine this goes hand in hand with local seasonal and organic food not to mention these are people with a locally sourced mindset so, you're going to find the best spots to eat and drink well, wherever you are in the world, by downloading the app at raisin.digital.
1: Raisin. And.
2: Disgorgeous, the only wine podcast.
1: Disgorgeous. And.
3: This is Evan Donovan, the owner of Demimond, and I want to thank Wild World for having us as a sponsor. You can come over and check us out at 257 Verrett Street in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Lots of good food, great wines, great coffee. DemiMonBK.com.
4: Okay, guys. Uh, right now we have the Brewer's Table, Cool Ships, Hybrids, and Bacterial Things, uh, moderated by Garrett Oliver. Uh, so, I'll, without further ado, here's Garrett. <laughs> All right. Well, hopefully we will not... Uh, uh, we will soon now, not outnumber you, <laughs> but you know we, we are we are here at a uh, at largely a wine fair, and it's good to be here. I I'd say that uh, looking around, everybody you know here on the panel is in some way, shape, or form a, a wine geek, you know, and a fermentation geek. Uh, in my case, I add to that cider and cocktails, which I'm sure a bunch of you guys do as well and so when I was asked what I might like to cover if I was uh, moderating a panel you know we talked about or we are going to talk about Brett or we are going to talk about something specific but given where we are and what we're doing uh, I wanted to have a panel really on where all the borderlands are you know between uh, all these types of fermented drinks um, I was last week in, uh, in China as was Joe, and uh, we had among many other things. You were you there for that that wild fermented, like thing with the uh, with the millet on top and craziest stuff ever. I mean, tasting things like miju, all these other drinks that are that are related are beer related, you know, all over the world that have spontaneous fermentations. Whether it's ukumboti, you know, which is a traditional beer in South Africa, you know, or you know, Billy Billy in, uh, in Congo, you see all of these types of beer fermentations, mixed fermentations, you know, that are going on and have gone on everywhere. So, for me anyway, and everybody will take their own take on it, my outlook on craft beer is that what we are all doing is climbing out of the matrix. Uh, you guys are not old enough to have lived there, but I lived there. And I thought that the world that I saw and the world that I tasted was true. And then when I moved to Europe in 1983, I discovered that almost everything I knew was a lie. And so part of what I think each of us is doing in our own different way is brewing our version of the truth, uh, whatever, whatever that means, uh, uh, to each of us individually. And I guess we can talk a little bit about you know what is terroir really, you know what is truth, and how do all these drinks kind of come together you know, over, you know, over time history and history uh, you know, and become relevant in today's world? Because I think there's only one story in American food, and that is the climb out of the matrix. And that what's going on in bread, and going on in cheese, and going on in wine, and going on in beer, and going on in ice cream, there's only one story. It's one thing. And we all are in our little silos, and we think that we are unique but you know there's, they're, they're not unique and they track exactly together. And so, uh, that's my view, but why doesn't everybody uh, uh, introduce themselves and you know, go down the line? We'll start with you, Jane.
3: Uh My name is James Priest uh, from the Referent Beer Blendery in Pennington, New Jersey, about an hour and a half, nearly straight west of here, uh, a little bit south. We uh, have been open since 2016, started brewing in the spring and opened in the winter. Um, our very first principle was that we were going to do yeah, a little bit a little bit much, uh, entirely spontaneous fermentation. So at no point in the process or over the years have we added yeast or cultures to any of our wort or beer, um, just letting it take its natural course. And uh, I think that spurred a lot of self-inquiry into what... Uh, what that means and how we can take that in other directions so we where we were initially using ingredients from wherever we cared to source them as most breweries would uh with the financial uh aspect in mind we've gotten away from that and started using only local grain uh, only local fruits at this point from the surrounding states and from new jersey from farmers we know where we can vouch for the quality and get it how we want it and uh yeah, we've just keep expanding in the directions of what is natural as we, uh, as we see it, as we keep evolving our own mindset of what that uh, might be.
0: Hi, I'm Brian Strumke. Um, I have a company called Stillwater Artisanal. Uh, it started in 2010. Um, probably the least terroir driven <laughs> brewer out there is, um, it's still a nomadic project where um, most of the products I produce start as conceptual ideas, um, inspirations from travel, life, etc. cetera. Um, I started in Baltimore, moved to Brooklyn. Right now I'm living in Seattle. Uh, beers produced at various locations around the globe, and... Um, yeah, I, uh, that's, yeah,
4: that's me. <laughs> We're jet lagged. We just came from China. Yeah. And, uh,
0: and it wasn't Joe who was with them in China. It was, it was, it was, it was me. <laughs> that's the jet lag.
5: Uh, I'm Joe Carroll. I opened a beer bar in 2003 called Spite and Dival. Um, I also have a barbecue place called Feta Sao. And, a, and in Feta Sao, our focus beverage wise is really american spirits particularly american whiskey and i also have a restaurant called saint anselm and our focus there is wine um so yeah (laughs) that's what i do
4: he's being modest i mean he was the first guy really you know the modern geek beer bar you know in uh you know in new york city at least was invented spite and devil you know 2003 so cheers to that
1: My name is James Howitt. I own Black Project Spontaneous and Wild Ales. Uh, Our focus is on doing 100% spontaneous fermentation, all native microflora. Um, We've been doing that since 2014. And our goal is essentially to make beer that can't be made anywhere else.
2: Joey Pepper? I'm the head brewer of Folk's Beer. I've been there for three years. And while we do not work with any Britannomyces or mixed fermentation there, uh, spontaneous beer is kind of what solidified my interest in beer uh, when I was going to school and discovering Lambic and learning about the science and the art of blending behind those things is what really uh, kind of captivated me and something that's been uh, a long love as far as my uh, career in beer.
4: So I wanted to start off with a little, uh, you know, with some meditations on what I call religion uh, you know i, I 've given a couple of talks on this, and I, I kind of feel like you know, craft brewers, I would say, at least for me, my closest uh, you know, i 've been brewing for 30 years now. Uh, most of our beer is some of it was groundbreaking in some ways, were, or some of it was groundbreaking and is now normal, like Brooklyn lager. Um, and most of the beer that we make is, you know, is with laboratory yeast. I'm not hating on laboratory yeast. We use it every day, and it does a great job for us. Um, much of the wine I've had you know, in the world has been fermented with laboratory yeast, and a lot of it was wonderful. However, my, the first time that I ever had cider, the uh, first time I ever smelled Brett was in cider living in England. I didn't know what Brett was. I just knew that this was a flavor and aroma that I liked. And since then, it kind of imprinted on me to the extent that, and I know this is a personal fault, I can like but not really care about ciders that are not naturally fermented. For me, that's not a matter of religion. It's just a matter of flavor. You know, and if people can create those flavors you know, with uh, laboratory yeast, then I would be happy to drink it. But I think every brewery uh, has its own religion, at least if it's a good brewery. And what I mean by religion is the things that you came to do, the things that you will do, and the things that you won't do. And in real life, like your own religion, those things may change over time. And you have ways in your mind of justifying the changes that you've made, the thing that you believed before and now that you don't believe. So uh, I want you, know, you know, each of you to maybe talk a little bit about what is your brewery's religion and how might it have changed uh, over time? I'm going to start with you, Joe, because you're not actually producing, but you have a, a through line in a certain way as to how you think about your restaurants. And since you buy our beers, um, how you're thinking about, about this idea?
5: So, first, I will say, though, I've never brewed professionally. I, I would guess, other than you, Garrett, I probably started homebrewing long before everyone else on the panel. I started in 1988 and brewed through the 90s just as a home brewer. And my philosophy then... So, the first beer I ever brewed was a brown ale out of the Papazian book, and it came out pretty well. But I decided it was expensive, and it took a lot of time, and it was kind of a pain in the ass. And I could just go out and buy a brown ale in the store. At that time, that was pretty decent from the UK. I kind of didn't need to produce my own. So I kind of set it upon myself to do weird shit and like try crazy things. So I malted my own amaranth and I fermented with packaged wine yeast strains and um, I used chocolate in the beer. And this is like 1989. Um, So it just started, I always was looking to do more interesting stuff. I felt like that's where homebrewing for me would be interesting because I couldn't buy that stuff. Um, when I opened Spite and Dival, the idea was really at that point in time there was no cool, interesting, comfortable place to drink beer, at least not for me, in my mind. There were few places to drink good beer, first of all, and the ones that existed were, they were sports bars or they were kind of just some divy bar or whatever. They were, I don't know, they, they weren't a place that I really was excited about going to and drinking in. I went there because they had good beer, but I wasn't excited about it. And when I went to Europe to drink beer for the first time, I realized these places are all great. Like, I'm, I love drinking in these places. Why don't we have places like this in the States? So it was a combination of making a place that felt comfortable and, and relaxed, but also took beer more seriously than even it was taken at that time at that first wave of craft beer. Serving ales at, a, at, at the proper temperature. I, I got rid of branded glasses. I wasn't interested in, in pouring in branded glasses, and, and we just used... 20-ounce and 16-ounce wine glasses. Um, I only opened up with, and, and still to this day, we only have six draft lines at Spite and Dival, one beer engine, and I felt like, to me, that's all you needed. We could cover our bases with six lines. I, I would go into places that had 20 or more lines, and it was just redundant, and a lot of the stuff you know sat on there for God knows how long. But dozens and dozens and dozens of bottles. and dozens, Well, we do have a lot of bottles, yes. We have probably a good hundred or so bottles. Um, now, when we opened in 03, there was very little... What had happened, and Garrett can attest to this, there was this, this kind of first wave of craft beer that happened in the late 80s and early 90s, and it kind of died out by the turn of the century. Um, it, wasn't, it didn't disappear, it had just cooled off a lot. And when we opened, there were not a lot of domestic craft beer as being produced, let alone available in New York at the time. So we really didn't have much in the way of domestic craft. It was predominantly European craft, and almost everything that was coming in from Shelton Brothers and Be United at the time. Um, I also, just as a little side note, was selling all of Dan Shelton's beers for the first probably year and a half in New York illegally because they actually weren't available here, but, which, you know, did a lot in the way of putting us on the map because we were the only place in New York City you could find Cantillon or Fantôme or some of this stuff at the time. People were kind of freaked out by it.
4: Well, it's funny how, you know, if you're pioneering, you know, we, we actually for a long time we were a distributor as well. Right. And so yeah, we you... sold everything. Like, if, if it wasn't Sam Adams and it wasn't Guinness, right. if it was crappier beer in New York City, it came through us,
5: period. I would say the first maybe two years we were open, we were purchasing from you guys. Yeah. yeah.
4: And so, you know, th- that's part of the development of Brooklyn Brewery and our whole thing. We were brewing Saison's in the 90s when nobody ever heard of them right. because we were the people distributing all the ones that you could, you could get. But uh, so for producing, on that side... It sounded like you had, to some extent, a religion change or an evolution. We like to call it, like, you know, I've evolved, as we say about, uh, you know, various issues. So what is the religion, the religion you started with, and where is it going? Uh,
3: unfortunately, yeah, it just keeps getting more uh, strict, more complicated. That's not you necessarily know?
4: bad. Nah, you no, know?
3: it isn't, it isn't. Yeah. Uh, so we start with spontaneous fermentation exclusively as our you know, very first principle, our number one commandment of uh, this is what we're doing, and the definition there being uh, no apparent external influence happening in the fermentation. So when you knock out from a kettle into a cool ship and open it up to the open air, air is nice and mysterious, and we don't know what happens there, but at no point are we adding cultures to anything. Um, and as we did that... And you start letting that ferment with, you know, some minimal intervention, but you're kind of panicked about, is this going to work, and to what degree of success are we going to achieve doing things this way? And we, at a certain point, because we were uh, blessed with a certain degree of what seems like random chance success early on, uh, just started saying more and more that we're going to be more and more hands-off with... What this looks like, uh, we've never had like temperature control apart from uh, a little bit of air conditioning in the summer. Uh, if I thought that there was a way around that too, that w- that'll be the next the next dimension for us. We don't heat the barrel cellar in the winter. We let it go through nice gradual temperature fluctuations, uh, which we think helps the longevity of the beer in the barrel and in the package. Um, and as there seemed to always kind of be a correlation between what was spontaneously occurring and what is natural. One of the definitions of spontaneous is that it sort of just naturally occurs, again, without apparent influence from any external sources. Um, that we could pursue those other channels of maybe using, maybe focusing more on what our terroir is, apart from just the air and the water that we were always using initially of finding the malt houses closest to home, finding raw grain close to home. Um, Hops are still dicey forests. Those are still usually all aged, but from mostly Europe and uh, the West Coast. Um, But yeah, with time, just uh, trying to let go more and more and let nature run its course and not really influence too much and just sort of Find the point in time in that beer's life that it's performing high in a way that we like, and whether we have to blend together or capture that as is, uh, just sort of framing that point in time in the
4: package. Except, you know, except in the matter of blending, I kind of feel like brewers are actually, at least for me, I feel that my nearest analog in the rest of the overall food and drink world is not winemakers but chefs. Um, You know, I I feel a much closer kinship to chefs. I'm not trying to generally express a piece of countryside or whatever else. I'm expressing myself with ingredients, you know, uh, uh, et cetera, sometimes with the direct help of natural stuff coming in that's serendipitous and sometimes driven, you know, single-mindedly towards a pre-expected and preconceived point. And both of those are, I think, uh, legitimate ways of brewing. So what's, what was the idea when you started Stillwater? Like, what was it that you came to do?
0: I kind of... I think I'm out of this group, I'm probably the guy that stepped out of you and Joe's shoes a bit. You know, I was a home brewer. Uh, I started Stillwater in 2010. Uh, I started home brewing in, like... I don't know. 95? 96 or something? Um... No, 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 2004, sorry. Um, that's <laughs> a
4: little bit different. We're jet-lagged.
0: <laughs> um, but it was like, I, I, you know, I remember coming up, uh, I was a beer enthusiast uh, for years, coming up to Spite and Dival, um, to the Brooklyn Brewery, and just seeing seeing this small, nascent evolution of what beer could be. I, I, was, I actually was in the cider prior to getting in the beer, and it was Belgian beers that kind of captured my attention. Um, so as a home brewer, same thing as Joe. Like First, I made a hoppy pale ale, like you know, set up recipe, came out fine. Again, it took a lot of time, didn't save me any money. So I'm like, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to devote time and effort into making my own beer. I wanted to make things that didn't exist. So Stillwater just became my my playground and my artistic medium. I was a musician prior to all this. So it was, I switched, I just switched mediums for my creativity. And I found that the parallels of making, producing beer and selling beer was very similar, especially the style of music that I was doing was electronic dance music. And I was a DJ. So it was all vinyl. So beer, uh, like Music was released as a physical format.
5: I'm not sure of the other people on the panel, but certainly the three of us all have a music background. We all come from a music background. You as well, right. Yeah, Yeah. so there's something to be said about that. He's busy.
4: (laughs) (laughs) No, we all have, you know, I used to produce, you know, I moved to London to produce uh, concerts, Um, you know, and we're all friends with a lot of the same bands and whatever else these days. Um... Who are also into natural wine, you know, etc. I call it the booze, food, music, you know, mafia. You know, it's like you know, like Paris, London, Tokyo. It's all us. <laughs> like it's all. You, know, you get there. It's like, I think if you're a brewer, you know, and it's a beautiful thing about it, you kind of have a family pre-made everywhere. You know, you walk in and you have the secret handshake and the door opens up, you know, and you're in everywhere in the world. It's a beautiful thing. Um, Going into what you were saying, I, I think that I come from a filmmaking background originally, and people always ask, how do you go from being a filmmaker you know, to being a brewer? And I'm like, it's exactly the same mind. It's half art and half science, and if you have all the science and no art, you get like a summer blockbuster where everything's perfect, but you just don't give a shit. You know, it's like you leave and it's, you forget the film two hours later. But then there are student films with all the heart in the world and great writing where they just don't know how to get the thing onto the screen or they don't have the money, you know, uh, uh, at the same time. And I kind of think these are, you know, really related things. Uh, I'm going to ask you, James, a a similar question and get into your religion, but also how have, for you, the other drinks, the other fermented drinks, influenced what you do at Black Project?
1: Sure. I mean, I've... um... I, I, I mostly will talk about wine because I um, I appreciate cider. I don't know if there's been a big influence that I could come up with, but um, there's there's been a big influence from natural wine, and that is that I was discovering it and drinking it, and at the same time getting going with Black Project. This wasn't the first year of Black Project, but the second year. Um, and we knew we had gotten some grapes from Colorado, and I wanted to to use them in, in beer and I just thought why don't we just make this like natural wine and um, you know there's a lot of different ways you could do it but it was essentially like a tiny version of winemaking um, that then got combined with beer and that's how we've always done those beers. Actually, We're pouring um, one of those beers here today but like um, it's almost 50-50 wine and beer and so getting into wine beer hybrids came about because of natural wine and drinking it, and then that sort of just snowballed everything into drinking more natural wine and being more inspired by, by that kind of terroir-driven uh, flavor.
4: So I came to natural wine definitely after beer. I mean, it was a long time ago in the days of 360. I see uh, sure. you know, Arnaud walking around there, and people forget, you know, uh, restaurants like you know Richard Luftig you know, at Felidia, even in, like, 2001, he was slinging a whole slew of natural wines. The Spotted Pig, he opened up the Spotted Pig with nothing but natural wine and got kicked out, you know, because they were like, people don't understand this shit. He's like, well, this is what I'm doing. He's like, you're out of here. So, you know, there are a lot of pioneers who people don't even remember, you know, or talk about in it. Um, But it's interesting to hear that you kind of went the other way around. You went kind of from wine.
1: Well, I was, I was, I was definitely into beer
4: first. Yeah, yeah. Um,
1: But but as I was making our beer, I had discovered that's when I had discovered natural wine. So beer was first. Then I was into spontaneous fermentation, and learned about natural wine. And then that became some of the some of the beers we do were inspired by that natural wine. I guess was yeah. So
4: So, Joey, I imagine that uh, uh, given what you said. You know you are somewhere in the back of your mind, maybe in the front of your mind, uh, trying to figure out you know how you within you know your space and and your business, can incorporate a little bit of this you know this uh, 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 second love if you like, into the stuff that you 're doing obviously you 're doing it through your your fruit expressions and whatever else, but do you have a plan to get into different biology
2: uh, yes, um, so right now we 're Our outlet would really be our Berliner Weiss series that we do, um, which is done with lab pitches uh, to specific lactobacillus strains that we really love and which will tank sour and sour in a controlled environment to a certain level of acidity that we believe is balanced and present without being aggressive. And then being able to use whole fruit that we're either sourcing ourselves or processing ourselves um, and allowing the fruit to express itself naturally through re-fermentation and conditioning. Um, This is something that we definitely very much believe in and is something that we will be unwavering moving forward with just using whole fruit um, while purees uh, provide an excellent base of flavor and it is the idea of that flavor in your mind. It is not exactly a unique product and it's going to display the kind of tertiary and more um, background flavors that those fruits can provide. Um, So I would say that's our outlet right now, but we would definitely like to move forward um, and be able to do some mixed fermentation eventually. Um, As with New York, space is always an issue. Um, So while we are kind of a smaller production brewery at this point, we're focusing on making our Berliner Vice series as well as really expanding our lager profile, um, which is something I've come to really love and definitely not within the same realm, but... um Yeah, and then the wine thing has been a growing love over the past three or four years. Um, Probably at my tail end of time at Torst and Greenpoint, which I was there for four years, and just really getting as much involved with beer as I could. And also by the end of it, finding myself exhausting a lot of things, and then being able to discover wines, particularly ones that are really expressive and unique, and drink differently, and it's just like, wow. And having that flip switch in your head... And being able to like dive into something and explore something to its fullest uh, was really exciting for me, um, and something that I, I really enjoyed. I find interestingly, my, my personal religion has evolved. You know, when we
4: started making fruit beers, you know, they were all about you know whole fruit, um, and we still do that. You know, we spent two weeks peeling a pallet of kiwi fruit, which believe you with a sharpened spoon. And that's the royal we. It was mostly actually Eric. You know, after a few hours, I couldn't feel my hands anymore, and I went upstairs, you know. And, uh, uh, you know, we we, we pitched it in where he could, but he did, you know, the gargantuan amount of the work. But, you know, I was like only whole fruit, so our first framboise, you know, framboise was, you know, all whole fruit, brett, you know, brett fermentation, re-fermented in the bottle. Uh, but then also, on the side, we started producing one called Rosé de Ville, which does use you know, uh, uh, a puree, and, you know, Argan Fruit Products, I think, does a great job. And I've come to think of them as just two completely different things. It's like sushi. There's sushi, and then there's sushi. There's Tuesday night bento box sushi from the place down the street, and it's like $18, and it's pretty good, and then there's sushi, you know, where you go to the counter, and you blow $300, you know, or whatever it is you have in your pocket. You know, and they're vaguely related, and they're both called sushi, but they're not the same thing at all. And I just kind of feel like I don't feel a conflict between those two things as long as you are honest. You know, and that's why we've ended up brewing this, you know, which is called Mega Purple, you know, which is a bread-fermented sour that we make, barrel-aged for a year, that is spiked with the widely used wine additive Mega Purple which is a trade name of the company that makes Mega Purple, and no one is going to sue me because nobody wants to talk about Mega Purple. It's in almost every red wine under $50 in the United States and a lot of trophy wines. You know, there are massive corporations that do nothing but Dr. Wine, you know, Enologics, etc. You know, I feel personally, as much as I love the wine world, that we are generally, I hope, more truthful and, and take uh, fewer shortcuts and... You know we're talking about this is an artifice which is created by us and we're not i also feel that if you uh i'll drink your wine if it tastes good but if you kill the biology of the place do not speak to me about terroir that's part of my religion almost everybody uses death star or something else to wipe out the original biology i understand you know you've got to make money And uh, it's a terrifying prospect, and you're kind of living with it, actually. Um, The idea that maybe once you take over from, usually it would be your father, um, you have maybe 40 seasons if you're a winemaker, traditional winemaker. Maybe. If you're lucky, you get 40 seasons, 40 opportunities. You know, we can have hundreds, but you have a very small number. How does that change the way that you do things? I mean, it does, does it not do, not, do you not have an almost feeling of mortality in a way? Always, you're, you're, always. you're much younger oh, yeah, than me, yeah, but no it's like, still, no, yeah. but you have to look forward, like, I got 40 seasons or 45 seasons, you know, to go. I mean, it's, if I had 40 opportunities to make, you know, the perfect IPA or something, uh, I'd be like, wow, that's not a lot of times.
3: Yeah, probably driven more, uh, unfortunately, by, like, consumer demand than my own desires. We make more blends distinct beers than I ever thought we would because people seem to just always want to drink whatever is new I don't know if that's a wine thing as well these days but it's been a beer thing for a good long while now um, so we I, even in a giving brewing season we can produce I don't know like I can brew 30 batches of wort all going to be minutely different sometimes barrel to barrel batch to batch um, but even from you know even from a single and we can turn that into multiple cuvées. And so then I feel like with a given, almost it's, it's on the level of the bottling instead of the harvest year. It is what I tell myself to, you know, right. live with my own mortality. Um, yeah, and then we are, I mean, mostly what I obsess over with my own mortality. And then the, uh, and the production of this is, am I making a beer that's going to, that I'm going to want to drink when I'm 70? Or that will outlast me. That's, that's the ultimate goal, almost. Apart from the natural production, it's just that it has almost infinite life. That's, that's the goal.
4: I've had infinite life. That's a great name for a beer. <laughs> I like it. You know, the, uh, I've had about 20 beers that were over 100 years old. Um, almost all of them were British barley wines uh, of some way, shape, or form, coronation ales. And one of them said on the bottle, uh, drink after 40 years. 40, you know, and I was like, wow. And that was an inspiration for my beer. I did my 20th anniversary a few years back uh, at Brooklyn Brewery. I made a beer called Hand and Seal in that really, you know, it's 13.5% barrel-aged thing. I said, I want to be able to drink this at my, you know, 40th anniversary at Brooklyn Brewery and have it really kind of coming into its own. And people think that these things are new. And it's a thing that I'm sure all of us hear all the time. Um, oh, you've gotten some great ideas from the wine people. You're putting beer in barrels. That's fascinating. It's like beer's been in barrels for thousands of years. It's stainless steel that's new, you know. And so, um, you know, I think that we're kind of returning, you know, a lot of what craft beer is is not so much invention as remembering. Um, And there are things that were driven out of the culture that we forgot, and we're just kind of, you know, resurrecting them and then cross-fertilizing them, you know, uh, uh, in different ways. Um, One question I have, looking at the way all these things blend together, and this particularly for you, Joe, to what extent do you see all these worlds engaged in what I will call fashion?
5: Uh, There's no question that is part of it, but look, it's it's all headed in the right direction. It's been heading that way for 30 years now. Is it? I think so. (laughs) Honestly, look, I mean, again, you know, put things into perspective a little bit and you know there was a time when pretty much all beer and wine kind of sucked at least domestically um, so uh, yeah generally speaking I do think we're, we're absolutely been he- we've absolutely been heading in the right direction for a long time now and it's it really there's been no better time for almost all of the all of the stuff we're, we're talking about than right now
4: I see Brian kind of thinking the same thing maybe that sure. I am which is that and this is the thing that we all have in common you know we have seen in my view, anyway, the rise of a monoculture, which I never thought we were gonna see. You know, I can tell you from a commercial point of view, for many of us, we've all decided to do something different, but if it's not hazy IPA, you know, your opportunity to sell it goes down immediately but by about change,
5: 70%. That changes rather quickly, and it has for a while now. All those things, you know, whether it was session IPAs, a handful yeah. of years, or whatever oh. it might have been. I mean, it was, it was imperial stouts and barley I Vines made the same opened.
4: argument three years ago, and I'm still waiting for <laughs> you know, for like all this garbage. It's not all garbage. There's a lot of really nice ones, but a lot of them are garbage. True, but you know,
5: look, this is what, what I call like the New York pizza problem, right? Like there is some of the greatest pizza in the world in New York City. There is also some of the shittiest pizza in the world in New York City because there's so much fucking pizza in New York. <laughs> so that's what happens. You can apply that to so much stuff, uh, and, and certainly in beer.
0: Yeah, It's like <clears throat> I'm going back to the whole digital to analog kind of situation where you know, better living through chemistry, and you, know, you can make high-fidelity high products, beers, music, with digital, with, with science, but then, but there's always that kind of, you know, human kind of compulsion to go back to nature, and that's where, you know, in a day where we don't need vinyl anymore, it's, it's hotter than ever at the moment, so it's, it's, it's you know, that, that's kind of like what this new rise of spontaneous fermented beers, you know, coming back into play, it's like, it's new vinyl.
4: You know, it's funny that you say that cuz I have a, I have a crank Victrola at home. It's, you know, it's actually a Brunswick, but it's like 1927 crank phonograph and a bunch of 78s I've got, you know, hot fives, hot sevens, you know, I have Paul Robeson's songs of Free Men and their ori- original binders. I have a lot of fun stuff. And every Christmas, you know, I'll play a whole bunch of songs, mostly, you know, blues and whatever else. But the sound that comes out of this thing is unworldly. And when I put on uh, 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 Bing Crosby singing Danny Boy, people reliably start crying. I mean, like, tears start streaming down people's face. And if that was a recording, you know, that would never happen with like a digital recording or a CD. There's something about the sound that comes out of this thing which moves you in a way that other things can't. And I think in a way there's an analog to the funk you know uh, uh, that natural yeast produce. There's something about being human that we recognize it when we taste it.
0: It's the warmth. It's like the additional white noise and, and the and the atmosphere that's captured in in those recordings. Um, while you get the higher fidelity in a digital environment, you you also lose. It's too clean, you know, at times. Well,
4: and it's it, it's compressed. Yeah, in a way, like you know, compressed you and, compre- and limited. You,
5: Look, I'd still rather hundreds of shitty New England IPAs than four shitty commercial lagers. <laughs> yeah,
4: yeah. So that's really what it comes that's down true. to Well, true. Well, I'm, I'm unusual in the craft beer world in that, you know, you see a lot of, and it drives me nuts, actually, when it chefs, you know, and I'll call out Dave Chang specifically. Love you, Dave. Uh, but, you know, no, your average sommelier or your average chef is like, Oh, you know what I love, man? PBRs. Like, when I've been, been working all day in wine, all the crush, a bunch of PBRs and whatever else, it's like, I'll tell you what, I always hated that shit. Always. Always. I hate every single last one of those beers. I hated them when I was in college. You know, I mean, I'm a brewer now because when I got to England, I found out that beer could actually taste good, and I, when I got back, I had to have it, so I started brewing it, because it was the only way to get it in 1984. And I'm a little bit tired uh, uh, of people kind of, you know, uh, 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 saying... Well, we don't... After we make a lot of beer, we don't go and say, you know what, uh, I just love to just pound some Blue Nun, you know, or, you know, like uh, some Two Buck Chuck, you know, after... You know, like, we drink wine, but, like, it kind of sounds like on the wine side, people like to say like you're a little uh, uh, crappy side amusement for when we've actually done something it's like I like actual beer and actual wine. That's my little soapbox, sorry. You know, I, I had to get that off my chest.
0: I'm tired of everyone talking about Miller High Life being legit. Right? It's garbage.
4: <laughs> we've been, yeah, We've
3: been having this conversation in the tasting room for the past, I don't know, month or so. And like yeah, so many wine lists that are absurdly beautifully curated and then there's four beers and they're all export industrial lagers and it's what 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 is the actual focus then but what is what what, where does what is where is the philosophical consistency there
4: well also you go to you you go to like copenhagen go to denmark uh, uh go to sweden go to norway and you have the whole sort of nordic food movement all this thing about the feeling of place and whatever else and you have thousands of years of brewing history and, you know, so much of science and everything else that went into brewing coming out of Scandinavia, and, what, and they're all completely wine-focused, despite being a uh, uh, Nordic food movement, is the idea. It's like, you, you know, do you guys see a disconnect here? I'm surprised to see that there's not as much uh, of that going on uh, overseas. Uh, uh, for, you know, for you in particular, James, I mean, it's kind of a funny thing We kind of got a lot of our beer culture from, like, you know, Belgium and England and Germany. Now you see other places in the world are getting their beer culture from us, some of the stuff that came to us and gets passed on down the line. And how are you seeing the things that you're doing kind of move out into the world uh, through an American lens?
1: Sure. Yeah, I mean, I'm fortunate enough to travel to Europe a few times a year and, and pour our beer there and it's, it's 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 super interesting because what we're doing in many I mean we we make some beers that are extremely traditional Belgian style lambic inspired beer um, we also do stuff where we take that base and then we we really um, push boundaries with it and do things that are not traditional but it's interesting to pour very traditional stuff even in Belgium and have people who have access to the real deal uh, appreciating and and finding the same similarities and flavors in our beer and being excited about it. And I don't know sometimes if that's just because it's from America or not. It's actually interesting. I mean, like, there was uh, some things a couple years ago where it seemed that some Belgian Lambic brewers were taking issue with things that were happening uh, and what people were calling their beer here. And um, without getting too much into that, uh, it's funny because I see a lot of people in America who will be like, oh, man, like the Belgians all they think, you know, it's Am Lamb, and they they think you guys are making garbage or whatever. It's actually very, very far from the truth, and I've sat down with all the people who are making real goos in Belgium, and they have the utmost respect for people like James and I who are making, like, real spontaneous beer. They have a bigger issue with people calling other beers that are not at all like that Lambic. Um, And and so it was interesting, even, even the populace of those countries... Um, having the same kind of respect for it. And I think, um, interestingly, sometimes being able to, like, educate drinkers, <laughs> even in Belgium, that, like, they're asking about it, and they're like, wow, that's crazy how you make it that way. And I'm like, yeah, but you guys invented this. And, and, and they, they're like, this is how Lambic is made? I'm like, that's exactly how Lambic is made. And they're like, really? And, like, they just, it's always something that they've had around, but they maybe didn't understand, like, the, like, process of it. And so it's kind of interesting. Like they want to know about how the Americans do it, and you're like, "I'm just doing it the way
4: those guys over at that booth have been doing it for 200 years." Um, I have yeah. ended up in the same conversation many times. It's like, "No, it's like, where do you get that from?" You're like, "You," right. <laughs> you know. It's like, "No, I learned we were, it from you know, watching you." Yeah, yeah. We I, like, you know, we were the first ones like bringing. You know, I remember bringing uh, IPA to uh, there was a a, a a a conference on IPA in London in 1992. Um, held by the British Guild of Beer Writers, and I brought, you know, an American, you know, IPA. It was heavily dry hopped. It was 7%. It was really bitter, uh, you know. And the British brewers all drank it, and they said, well, that's very funny, but no one's ever going to drink something like that. You know, of course, within a few years, they all were. Um, And I think, you know, it's like, where'd you get that from? You. I read your books. They're on my desk, you know, uh, I know, you know, I'm basically channeling your culture in a way back, you know, in in the other direction. Um, In our case, you know, our mixed fermentation things are more, I have a different religion than you guys do. And it's not that I don't have huge respect for spontaneous fermentation. I'm kind of more interested in what I call the borderlands. So many of the things that we are pouring actually start off, and sorry if this breaks some rules here, um, I don't think you could tell to, to taste them, and it's not easily. They actually have long secondary in barrel with lees or you know, uh, uh, yeast sets that are from natural ferment, fermentations. And so basically, for me, it's like the yeast that comes in the lees, I can take a liter of liquid and concentrate an entire hectare of land in one liter of liquid you know and the terroir is in the leader um and c- then can be dispersed uh uh into large you know largish amounts of beer so really it acts like a, a focal point or a lens you know that comes down to this point and then spreads out uh on the other side and i think of it in the 80s there was always this thing where you say oh we have so and so's backing band you know tom waits is like i've got elvis's backing band or then later people are like i've got tom waits backing band and it's like you'll go back and forth between jazz and rock and whatever else, but they're still a band, and they know how to make great music together, and even if you change the form, they still know how to play. And so that's kind of like what we're doing with those beers. You know, I think of the Lees as a band, and if they played really well together in this form, then when they get into my kind of music, they'll play some really nice music there, too. And so far, i found that to be true. Have you ever taken any of the stuff off of your ferments and tried to drive anything else? Or what is your idea, uh, what is your religion of originality? Exactly. Because if I were to take your Lees and drive another fermentation with it, would that in your brewery be legitimate or that's not a thing you would do?
3: I would say it would not be something that I would do in my brewery. uh, it, I would not consider it spontaneously legitimate unless the beer you were adding it to was already spontaneously fermented. Um, but I, I don't—I don't think that adding, you know, with intent, cultured lees, whether yeah, isolated lees, basically, if you were to drain off a barrel and add it to fresh wort, that's those lees are not uh, originally occurring. From nature those have had plenty of time to do what they were going to do in a beer and I like it to start from that original point of nearly nothing and grow from there. It'd be very cool if you want leaves sometime. Happy to give them to you. I'm not I'm all for I'm all for people exploring all of the boundaries of what a cool wild fermentation can be. It's a very different profile
1: though too. Absolutely. Because I mean, yeah. you're, you're talking about I mean, almost inculturable amount of cells in a cool ship.
4: I have witnesses. You know. yeah. I, I will take those. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I people ask me like, do I have a uh, a wish to do spontaneous fermentation? And it's not like I'm completely uninterested. And I understand that you know, lambic happens you know even right in the middle of Brussels. So it's not like you can't do it in the city. But I'm at least where I am now, where I physically am. I'm I'm born and bred in New York City. I'm a New York City person. I love the rest of the world. I go there all the time. I like here. I'm I'm not one of these people who says, I need to get away for the weekend. It's like, no, I don't want to get away for the weekend. I'm not trying to leave this place. This is where I actually want to be. And so I want my beers to kind of reflect the flow of the world through New York City. And I'm not trying to express the air in New York City or the New York City environment, which has a layer of black dust in it. (laughs) <laughs> in my case, you're so out in New yes, Jersey, yeah, yeah. 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 yeah, So, Joey, I mean, like, what? Yes, yeah, yes, yeah, spontaneous soot fermentation. Uh, uh, so, Kiwi inoculation. I, I, I feel like I got a partial answer from from you. I'm not going to press you hard on it, but I mean, well, I'll put it the other way. Um, I have another, a different question. I'm going to I'm going to give you a break here. What for each of you? And we have only like five minutes here. What is the dark side? The thing that you've been tempted to do that keeps speaking to you and it's against your religion, but somehow, if nobody could really see you, if your God, you know, your beer God couldn't see you secretly, you would do it.
2: Um, all right, well, I think that is actually a good question because we were talking earlier about where the culture's at and everything, and when I was working at Tourist, I felt like everything was pretty much in line. Like, nothing was super, super crazy. Like, the people that were doing, you know, experimental IPAs, they were experimental, but people weren't, like, scratching their heads and being like, why did you put all this crazy pastry shit inside of it? And now I feel like we have more of a dichotomy in the industry where you have people, uh, running back to tradition, whether it's lager and lager brewing or doing spontaneous fermented beer and taking these you know, very you know, guided steps to like this is how you make this product and then the other side of that where people are using beer basically as a base and it's more of puree or some you know, lactose or whatever at that point. So you have these IPAs that I can't even imagine calling them an IPA anymore because there's so much other shit in it and the beer itself is probably a very small component at this point. So it's not something that I would necessarily want to do, but that would be the style. Oh, you're for curious. Me. I'm not exactly curious. <laughs> it's more so what scares the shit out of me um, is those styles of beer that it's stuffs being just kicked into it willy nilly, and it's just not. It's more of an afterthought, and it's more about no, no, no. This is what sells. This is how I need to present myself to create this thing that I think people want.
4: Okay, that's a fun answer, but evasive. Uh, James, what is what, what is the dark side that is uh, sure. speaking to you in the night? Sure. Yeah. Um, so I mean, we people don't. Some people don't know us, but we
1: started actually making. We were a clean first, and Black Project was the sort of top secret side project. Um, and we haven't made clean beer since 2016, um, and, and made our whole tap room be Black Project as well. But um, at the very first part of Black Project, having a tap room, we. Every everything was in bottles, and, and we were putting some in kegs. But at some point, I had strayed, I guess, to the dark side a little bit. And that was, I had isolated some cultures from our beer. I have five or six strains banked at White Labs, and a couple of them make absolutely incredible, like New England style IPAs. Um, and we did that a few times, like a few batches, and people liked them a lot because um, I thought, oh, we need to have something not sour on tap. Uh, not a, not nothing wild, you know, and these are very clean tasting, and uh, I sometimes still want to do that, but I, it's just not really what we
4: do. Um, well, Brooklyn Brewery invented this fun thing called collaborations. Sure, 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 yeah. So, you know, <laughs> we were, we're actually the first brewery in the world to do them, um, and so you could collaborate with another brewery, and then your conscience could be clean. Sure, and we have and done that. Could,
1: yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
4: yeah, and now we have guest taps, so we can have, literally have it on as a guest
1: tap and it's just you know it's a new image plus black project or whatever uh, yeah.
4: So I don't know Joe whether you have a you know you can have a dark side in your. Uh... I don't really I, and I
5: try not to be dogmatic about anything I do. Uh, bottom line is like I do all the wine purchasing still I still do a lot of the beer purchasing. Everything that we pour at any of my places is stuff I personally enjoy. So and that's all I really go on like I, I, when I buy a beer or a wine it's got to speak to me in some way it doesn't have to be weird or unusual or particularly interesting it just has to speak to me in some way it has to have a character and as long as it has that I really don't get too caught up in the finer details too much I mean I think my palette drives that a little bit but uh, I, I don't I try not to worry about all that other stuff so much. Ryan we got two minutes.
0: <clears throat> yeah I also don't yeah I have a very agnostic approach to what I do um, I don't know I gonna say dark side I like to do like 5,000 barrel batch of Classique or Extra Dry. <laughs> so, you see where I'm getting at?
4: Yeah. And, and you seem like you found a, a, a focus that you're not going to move too far off your mark.
3: Yeah, yeah, at this point. I was going to jokingly say we could just fill the cool ship with a bunch of bags of lactose and <laughs> knock out into there, let it all dissolve nicely and produce whatever one's looking for. Um, but, no, I mean, if anything, probably uh, sneaking away and you know, actually just fermenting straight wine or other uh, fruits. And, uh, yeah, maybe just keeping them for ourselves. But it's not strictly legal where we're uh, located.
4: Well, who can see you? <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, that's why you surround yourself with land. Thank you so much for uh, for listening. Uh, uh, you know, come see us when you need a, a, a break from uh, from the beer. We have, you know, one of my favorite questions ever. Uh, At my friends, the four horsemen around the corner from you, uh, they go up to the table and they say, All right, would you like wine that tastes like beer or beer that tastes like wine? (laughs) It's all about fermentation. Thank you.